Welcome to episode 340 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on June 23rd, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss the topic or recent news and how it relates to you. Microsoft has released a response to the denial-of-service attack that occurred in early June against Azure and some details about how you can protect yourself against similar attacks. We also discuss some Terraform news with the June updates, as well as a new module to manage Azure AD with Terraform. Finally, we wrap up talking about Copilot as the release gets closer and Microsoft has released guidance around preparing your Microsoft 365 tenant for its release and adding it to your environment. I feel like we should talk about news, but I don't know that I really want to talk about news. <laughs> Fair and, enough. Yeah. Okay, so I have one for you, Scott. I forgot to send you this. This was on my list, and I have to find it now. I think I sent it to you in a text message. Remember how okay. a couple weeks ago, I think it was a couple weeks ago or a week ago, we talked about... That outage in Azure. And Microsoft kind of did everything in that news article to not say denial of service. They just talked about a spike in traffic. Mm -hmm. I do remember that one. They did come out now with the official response to that. And it is Microsoft's response to a Layer 7 distributed denial of service attack. So they did come out and say that it was a denial of service attack. It was interesting. It started in early June. I don't know when that actual outage was, but it sounds like this was actually a denial of service attack that occurred across maybe multiple days that temporarily impacted availability. They did open an investigation, tracking it to a threat actor that Microsoft tracks as Storm 1359. (laughs) I wish I had a cool name like that. Yeah. yeah, But they did dive into kind of what was going on. They did say no evidence of customer data being accessed or compromised. It was layer seven rather than layer three or four. And it was a combination of attacks, an HTTP, HTTPS flood attack, a cache bypass, and a slow-loris. Is that how you pronounce it? Slow-loris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, effectively a client that opens a a connection. So think like, hey, I make I make an HTTP request, and so I've I've got that TCP socket open, and I'm ready to go. And the client then just, just sits there. Yep, keeps it open, consumes resources. Yep. The other interesting thing about this, or nice thing though, is Microsoft's also because it was against Azure and. Like Azure uses Azure, which is kind of odd to think about in and of itself. But (laughs) they talk about how you can use Layer 7 protections, such as the Web Application Firewall or the WAF, not to be confused with the Well-Architected Framework or the Wife Acceptance Factor, to help protect against those. So they also not only kind of said this is what happened, but also gave recommendations how even you as a customer hosting things in Azure could take advantage of the WAF to help prevent some of these Layer 7 DDoS attacks. Yeah, it's another thing that's just happened over time. As web applications become more prevalent, stuff starts to move up the stack. And I guess in this 
case, the OSI stack. And you know, you start to go from layer three, layer four, and then you hit up to the application layer on layer seven, and it starts to get more interesting. Where clients can do like really weird things, like not just even like the the slow loris kinds of things where you maybe open a connection and then you purposefully go slow with it. There are clients that misbehave even when they don't intend to. Like sometimes I see storage customers that do weird things with like HTTP connection pooling. Like like they don't understand the way like sockets are pooled inside of SDKs or inside of some of the frameworks that exist. So they start to do weird things. Like, you know, occasionally I'll have a customer where they go, oh, you know, I thought I had enough of the data, so I just stopped downloading it. And then I start seeing all these network errors in my storage account. Why do we see network errors? It's like, well, let's go read our documentation. A, a network error is when a client suddenly disconnects and we're still sending data, so we don't know if the client ever got it. <laughs> and they look at us and they go, "Oh, well, we got all the data, so we walked away." It's like, but you didn't walk away in the right way, you know. Like sometimes I have customers who do things like they send us like RSTs, and we're like, "No, you shouldn't do that. We should send you the RST because we're done." And it's just weird. So I think the more of that, like, just underlying implementation stuff that's been abstracted away from developers, sometimes it's a little easier to lose sight of how this stuff works now and and how it comes together and and what that all looks like. I was actually I was same kind of vein of like weird client behaviors and maybe you don't understand or think enough. It's not that people don't understand. I think it's just that they don't kind of think end to end about how it comes together. Yep. Is we were working with a customer on easy copy. So easy copy client tool, it copies data from on-prem, service to service, like all those kinds of things. So it's a multi threaded application and it also has concurrency built into it. So within these threads you can spin off kind of n HTTP connections because you have to fire off HTTP requests to the storage service to be able to do your copies. And we were working with a customer and they're like, "Hey, we're getting this weird error on Linux where we're running out of sockets." And was like, huh, you really shouldn't like ever run out of sockets because we purposefully limit the number of threads that can go up so that doesn't happen. Because like most Linux clients, like a default installation on like a modern Linux kernel, you've probably got something from like 20,000 to 40,000 ephemeral sockets to work with locally. And it's like, wow, that's a lot for you to run out of. Like, what are you doing? Oh, well, we're running multiple instances of AZ copy on the same server. And then each one of those instances has this concurrency setting and it's doing this thing. And we're like, Oh, we never really intended for you to run multiple instances of AZ copy on the same server. You can certainly <laughs> run multiple instances, but you should kind of like fan that out. Maybe right. you have this one go look at this directory, this one go look at this directory. And the response we got back, which I kind of went like, fair enough, but was, well, your documentation doesn't say that we shouldn't run multiple instances on the same server. So I was like, okay, fair enough, right? Like I'll, I'll go update the documentation <laughs> so that doesn't happen so that you know future customers can take that into consideration. Yeah. But it was a weird one to me. Like I like I hadn't even thought about ephemeral TCP port exhaustion on Linux clients in like a long time. It's like something that's been so far abstracted and so far outside of my head. Like, like why would that be top of mind for me or anybody else until you run into a weird edge case? Right. So things like this 
do happen. I think in the case of like the DDoS attack that that you pulled up and some of the things in there, like you do have to think about kind of multi-layered mitigation and how you're going to mitigate risk there for yourself. So you can't really protect at just layer four or layer three. Like you, you probably do need some things at the application level as well. And you know that often comes at the expense of operational overhead and money as well. Like sometimes these advanced security solutions do cost you more to pick up those things like web application firewalls and and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's worth it for customers to consider and kind of do that like you know risk reward kind of thing, right? Like put it on the scales, see where it balances out and what makes sense for your business, your workload, all that good kind of stuff. Absolutely. I'm still this this whole running multiple copies of AZ copy on the same server still has me going, huh? I don't know that I ever would have even tried that or thought to try that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can certainly do right. it. There's no limitation. Uh, it, it was never explicitly not recommended. Now it's not recommended because we, we updated the docs and and put that Fair one enough. in there. But should should you want to find a way to exhaust tens of thousands of ephemeral ports <laughs> on your client very quickly? Yeah, just. Spin up a couple copies of AZ Copy and I mean, tell it to copy a couple hundred thousand objects at the same time. I was going to say, they must have also set the concurrency really high, I yes. would assume. <laughs> <laughs> concurrency high plus number of objects really high. So, one of the interesting things about like AZ Copy as a client tool, and, and I sometimes forget about this, like I tend to view it as a and not to sell it short, but like it should be used more for, I think, more manageable migrations and data movement scenarios, especially right. if you're doing like an on-premises client to the cloud for a whole bunch of reasons. And you know, over time, like the maturity of that tooling, like it's good today. Like you can throw 50 million object, you know, job at easy copy, and it'll churn through it and do it like that. But just because you can do 50 million objects in a single job, does that mean Doesn't you should? Mean you well, should. again, we're back to like weigh the risk reward thing. Like how big's my client? Uh, you know, what's my network throughput? Uh, what's my right. CPU and and all these other things that you've got to kind of put together on the client side and just Think about a little bit. Right? I think, it's not that it can't be done. It's that you have to like think through it end to end and rationalize it. And you know, we're all moving so fast that you know you just kind of go, 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 go. And sometimes you don't know that you've uh, haven't like passed a point of no return, but that you've <laughs> passed a point that you maybe could have caught sooner and come back to. So I always think it's very, very interesting to go work on those kinds of things. And I am 100% happy to be putting more prescriptive guidance, like, you know, yes, you should do this, yes, you shouldn't do this, right. into documentation and things like that. I think that moves everybody forward. Oh, absolutely. I wish everybody did that with documentation. And again, I think it just, like, that's what they ran out of first. To your point, I've never thought about doing that because I always feel like you'd choke out your throughput, whether it's the NIC going through the switch or the CPU or the memory or the IOPS on the hard drive, to choke out the available connections and the available sockets before you hit any of that other stuff. Because that's why I've always run AZ Copy or other SharePoint migration tools when I've done something similar, probably not this amount of data, 
you spread it out for that, right? I think any tool that does this, right? Like not to, not to single out easy copy, but anything that's like, going to open an HTTP connection, call an API, and orchestrate this type of movement. Like ultimately, bits. Like when you're doing an on-premises to like cloud to migration cloud scenario, stuff, right. like that stuff needs to move over the wire, and it's going to consume resources. It's going to be CPU. It's going to be memory. Like say you want to like hash objects before you send them with like you know I don't know an MD5 or a SHA hash. Or something like that. Like, guess what? You've got to do all that someplace. So that takes TPU and then, you know, potentially increases the size of your responses even minimally because it's got to go in headers and be stored in a service, blah, blah, blah. So it's one of those things. Like, nobody should have to think about it. But then when you get into those kind of edge cases, you go, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Interesting. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. All right. So with that, what else do we have? Which one of these do you want to go? There were a couple of interesting ones. I've got two interesting ones. I would like to chat about something that you brought to my attention. So why don't we do Terraform and Azure AD? Azure AD. Because I didn't even I didn't even know this was possible through a through like an HCF script. Well, I don't think this was possible up until very recently. And I don't even know. I'll be fair, I don't know where this came from in my RSS feed. I have some searches that just pull random stuff into my RSS feed. I may have seen this on Twitter. But yet, this was an article from June 20th, so just three days ago, about Azure AD with Terraform examples. And I agree, I didn't know this was possible. So I've done some with Terraform, and I've looked at Terraform, I've written some Terraform, we've talked about Terraform and Bicep on the podcast before, but it's always been in like provisioning resources, whether it's managing VMs or app services or firewalls and the whole infrastructure is code type of thing. And then I saw Azure AD intro with Terraform and I was like, huh, this is going to be interesting because I never... I never thought about this before, and I wasn't quite sure what this even was. And then you start reading through the article, and it is even more interesting. So it the article kind of starts out with your Terraform setup for Azure AD, kind of what you need to do, what providers you need to specify, how you would go in and set this up with a client ID, client secrets, tenants ID, subscription IDs. And then the next thing is managing users in Azure AD. So it's all about how you can create and manage users with 
terraform. I don't even know. Where do you want to start with this? Like it goes through, (laughs) again, it just kind of caught me off guard with, you can go through and set these user properties. So I think it's an interesting idea. A couple of things just from like looking at the article and I guess the way the kind of provider operates. It's all fairly straightforward. It's an official kind of thing. Looks like supported on the HashiCorp side. So they've got kind of their own Azure AD provider just to plug into. You pump in a tenant ID. So pretty easy to figure all that out. And as far as how the provider interacts with Azure AD, it looks like it's all just a service principle. So, uh, you know, you go create a new service principle grant that service principle contributor rights over to your Azure Active Directory and then you end up you know with a client ID client secret all that good kind of stuff which can just be exported out you know just environment variables that sit on the client side and then get it running management looked pretty rich like it doesn't look too bad to get started with you know you can create users you can assign roles it even works with administrative units <laughs> that was kind of good like yeah. uh, I didn't even know like most people read the documentation and and knew those existed. Group membership, applications, licensing, which I think is really cool. Devices as well. So if you're thinking about devices and groups and dynamic security groups, that's all in here and all good and ready to go. I think like it seems like it has a good surface area. The really interesting thing to me would be, hey, this is Terraform. So it can do things like state management. So can it start to manage state of group memberships inside of my Terraform scripts? I think that could be a little bit interesting. Like as you start to extend your scripts, like maybe application deployment now, like here's a cool one, right? Like because now you have the ability to create users and all these kinds of things. You could go ahead and say, like, when you're deploying, say, your new web app, and your web app has a specific specific set of maybe security groups that are already in your Azure AD that are going to be associated with some RBAC roles on the resources in Azure that are spun up. Now you can go ahead and kind of apply that user security, that RBAC, and kind of do all the identity and access management things as part of your native Terraform script and not have to reach out and run like a separate Bash script or a PowerShell script on the side. So, And then you get all the state management across you know, all those resources within there. And I think that's pretty nifty. I'm going to have to go play around with this one. Yeah, I was looking at it. I don't see much about state management here, but I think that was my first thought that I had with this as well. Like... I mean, you could use dynamic groups, right? If you have dynamic groups and you're managing users and their group membership that way, technically based on user attributes, it would automatically undo and redo things, but then people could change attributes, you could still manually create security groups. But if you could kind of lock down your Azure AD environment by forcing state management of security groups... I guess I see pros and cons to this too, because you start thinking through if I'm managing group membership users and groups with Terraform and managing their state. I'm thinking like Terraform state. So, you know, when you spin up a Terraform script, you can create a plan and then you can apply that plan. So, 
if this works the way other Terraform modules do, I should be able to do something like create a security group in Terraform and then populate group membership in that group. And I run it the first time, like let me do a plan and apply it. And then when I come back and run it again, if there's no changes, it's just going to skip it. It knows I don't need to do it. Or right. if I run it again and I've changed it, say like I've gone and added a user, like, hey, we hired Ben, he's onboarded, ready to go. You just put that in it. And that's the only change that fires off against the environment. So but, not so much like Azure AD state, but actual like be, the ability to like retain state within state. the plan on the Terraform side. But what if you're creating other groups? Like I'm going to assume this is only security groups, maybe. Oh no, there's Microsoft 365 groups too, but you might not necessarily want it to main state, maintain state of Microsoft 365 groups. Or if you were using that, what would happen as you create new teams? I mean, you'd really have to think through how you would do all of that because you wouldn't <laughs> want it deleting teams because it wasn't in your Terraform. Welcome to everybody's big problem with Terraform or, <laughs> or the thing that they run into, right? Like Terraform only knows what Terraform knows right. and the things that it doesn't know. So, so the more you manage outside of your Terraform scripts, the less idepotent they become over time, or I think kind of you lose some of that power. So should you go down a path like this, quite often you are getting to the point where you're making the decision of saying like, hey, I'm going to use Terraform as a management tool and really with the management plane of these services that I work with to go ahead and affect change within them. It's the same kind of thing, like if you think about Terraform and maybe there's an update to a service or a new service in Azure and that isn't available in Terraform yet. The answer is usually, well, hey, if there's not a provider for Terraform for the to the resource provider in Azure, just go ahead and fire off an ARM template. Well, the problem is, when you fire off an ARM template, all Terraform does is it knows it ran an ARM template. It doesn't know like what was in the template and what resources were created within it, so you lost like that state management piece, which I, I think is why people become a little kind of like zealots around like, oh my gosh, like I need native Terraform support for these kinds of things, which again, you know, like makes sense if if you kind of walk it end to end, like you can understand the desire and why you would want it to be that way. So I view this as like this is probably pretty cool for standing up new stuff and then kind of maintaining it going forward. The stuff that's there, it's going to be a little bit harder, right? Because Terraform's not going to have any idea that it ever existed in the first place. But all about having like new providers that are integrated into the ecosystem, they work really well without having to do things like ARM templates or kind of sideways machinations like that, so that you can maintain like TF state and all those kinds of things. Like that's goodness. Yeah. And this, it does force you to do a password too. So they also include in this article a random password generator from Terraform. So you can use that in combination with it. I think the other place I thought this could be useful too is I've done things before with different solutions where you have a service account. And you need to create a service account, you need to have a password. Maybe that service account needs to maintain certain permissions. I've had issues before where you create a service account, you give it permissions, it's doing something, and some overzealous administrator comes in and sees that said service account has permissions and maybe they don't know why and they take them away and it breaks stuff. <laughs> Never happens. No, if you can maintain, maybe you're not doing all your user management, but if you build a solution that requires a service account and requires the service account to be a member of certain groups or have certain permissions, 
being able to both create and then kind of your point, manage the state so that if somebody comes in and does alter certain settings, permissions, groups, whatever on the service account, Terraform goes in and sa- or redoes it the next time you run it. There could be some benefits there I, I could see with this as well. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. While we're talking Terraform, real quick, I'll put a link in the chat and show notes for everybody as well. If you go out on Tech Community, the... <laughs> Terraform is HashiCorp, and yep. you know they they write the things they write, and then there's also Microsoft, which contributes back to HashiCorp, and in some cases holistically maintains some of those Terraform modules and kind of the the management of how those map back to the resource providers in Azure and all that kind of stuff. So if you're into Terraform, there is an Azure Tools blog. You might want to go follow that blog on Tech Community, like throw it into an RSS reader, like we've talked about. In the past, or you know, however you choose to consume that, but they do monthly updates for what's come out in Terraform. I don't know if you've been paying attention to some of the things, but like they've been pushing new updates to the export tools. So being able to go back between native concepts of uh, Terraform and Azure can be a little bit hard sometimes in this kind of multi-cloud scenario. That's out there. They also host community calls. I believe they do those. Monthly or or bi-monthly, I forget the exact cadence for them, but folks can go out and register for those community calls. It's like aka.ms forward slash Azure Terraform. You can just register, join the community, and uh, go ahead and do that. And then they're always pushing out new quick starts, all that kind of thing. So super helpful for kind of keeping up with what's going on on the Microsoft side of Terraform, which is potentially different than the HashiCorp side of Terraform (laughs) and, and what it's doing is like, HashiCorp as a whole. Yeah, I saw this too. I haven't read through what was new in June, but excellent call out, good resources. Export tool and yeah, some some new documentation and, and quick starts and things like that, which is probably one of like the other big asks that I see a lot is like, hey, how do you do this? It's like it's not documented yet. <laughs> okay, we should yeah. go fix that. And the la- the last community call that's mentioned in here was yesterday. On June 22nd. It looks like it's maybe like every other month. They had one on April 6th. Doesn't look like they had one in May, and then they had one on June 22nd. So if you're interested, like you said, Scott, just go sign up and watch for notifications and emails about those community calls because they don't look to be particularly consistent. Easy you can also be up. a speaker. If you're interested, fill out a form at AKMS AZTFCC speakers and we'll reach out if you like your topic, if you want to co-present on a community call. So if you don't want to just observe, but you want to participate and have something interesting to talk about, I know from running user groups in the past with you, Scott, that People are always looking for speakers that are interested in speaking. Yes, uh, they are hard to find. So I have one more, Scott, that is not Azure-related or Terraform-related, but is one I have been anxiously waiting for. Is There was an article published this past week about how to prepare for Microsoft 365 Copilot. This is not an announcement about Copilot being out there, or getting public preview access to it. It is still in the early access program. There's a link to it if you want to go apply and find out more about that. But the fact that they are now publicly talking about what you need to do to prepare, 
to me means that maybe, hopefully, this is right around the corner and I can go give Microsoft some more money for yet another license. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I always love things like this. You're like, huh, what do I really need to prepare for, right? Like, I already, if you're a Microsoft 365 Office 365 customer, you would think like you already have a (laughs) lot of the groundwork in place, but you might not. Uh, licensing is probably going to be a big one up front. Like, do you have the right types of licenses? So, Copilot is like, as far as what they've said so far, for Microsoft 365, you're going to need either an M365, E3, or E5 license. Yep. You need the Azure AD account. Like, that all makes sense. And then all those apps and services that Copilot is going to work with, like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, OneDrive. All that kind of stuff. Turns out you're going to need that, and and I think that's probably one of the more interesting things. Like having done the M365 Office 365 administrator thing for multi-thousand person orgs, you have clients who are kind of multi-thousand. It gets like weird sometimes, right? With some of those organizational requirements or just things they've put in place. Like, oh yeah, you know, we we let this business group run this thing, but we don't do this over here. We haven't deployed this yet or turned this on. And I think for like Copilot to work across the stack, you're back to one of these inflection points where you kind of got to like get ready to turn everything on and live with it. <laughs> right. And they but did so they did say two further down. There's a footnote all the way down and I saw it in the comments. For SMB, business standard and business premium are also eligible base licenses. So this was not called out in the initial technical requirements, but is a footnote that if you're an SMB, you can also use either of those. I'm curious about this, Scott, from the preparing for it with the Word, Excel, PowerPoint, OneDrive, Outlook, Loop, and more. It says you need access to the Microsoft 365 apps and services. Is this going to be that you need the desktop license of those apps? Or do you think it'll just be, like if you have just the online version of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, is that going to be enough? That's not specifically clear in here from a licensing perspective. It also does say you need to be on current channel or monthly enterprise channel for Microsoft 365 apps to have access to Copilot. Yeah, so doesn't the channel thing for apps apply to the web desktop is, clients? I think it's desktop and web. And, and web, yeah. Yeah, so I would speculate it would work on the web, particularly because a lot of these features do tend to come to the web before the desktop. I'd have to dig it out. I thought there was an announcement the other day that like when the new version of Outlook drops, like you know that new like web-based version of Outlook at that point like Outlook is basically like a glorified PWA. A glorified, and I, yeah. I'm way over simplifying it, but like I guess right. I'm allowed to do that. You can absolutely do that. So those are some of the technical requirements. It also talks about Permissions, there's some stuff in here about security, privacy, data residency, that it's going to follow Microsoft's principles around those. I think that's going to be super interesting with GDPR and some of the things yeah. that have been going on in the EU around AI. Like, are you going to be able to do this organizationally? Let alone, like, can you configure the stack? Can you light everything up? Like, are you okay with that organizationally? Just like the broader question of, like, is machine learning things like this? Kind of hate that we're calling them AI. 
But are AI things like this allowed in your country or in your geography is going to be another big question for folks. And then what do you do? Like if you're a global organization, like how are you going to handle this and what's that going to look like and how is Microsoft going to handle it? I think those are going to be super gnarly kind of questions to dig into. So this whole thing is interesting. I saw an article about this and I can't find the one I saw recently, but it did pull up one back from April where there was a leak at Samsung where Samsung employees entered sensitive information into ChatGPT. And depending on where this data goes from Copilot and from, I mean, even ChatGPT is the bigger one because it's just open public, is you're giving these models confidential information that they then turn around and get trained on and could technically leak out to a competitor who uses it to look for the same information, um, which kind of ties into this whole data residency, security, privacy, is when I start having all these internal documents, presentations, that's learning from the graph, and it's generating these models and learning, making sure that data does stay secure and private. So my understanding for Copilot, and, and I could be off, I've, I've got to go watch some of this stuff about the indexing service mm-hmm. for it. So the Base model, like the foundational model, was not trained and will not be trained on customer, customer data. data. Yes. So you're effectively like Microsoft Mechanics had a pretty good video on it. I think that kind of laid it out. I'll try and dig up a link to it. But you're kind of running through this series of like meta prompts. So it's a meta prompt that builds on a meta prompt that builds on a response and another meta prompt from there. And then it's augmented with kind of security controls in Azure AD and making sure they've got the guardrails and, and ring fencing and things there. So if you think about it for like large language model to say summarize this meeting for you, for it to be able to respond to that, really it's got to go back to the transcript of the meeting. It's not training on that data, but it is eventually running that data like through one of the meta prompts so that it can feed in that document or whatever it needs to do and go summarize. But how it learned to summarize and what it thought a good summarization was, like that's all in the foundational model and, and none of that was trained on customer data. So we shall see. Yeah, and it does get into that in that at security, privacy, and data residency. It says Copilot does not use customer data or user prompts to train the foundation. Copilot does not use OpenAI's publicly available services. It uses Azure OpenAI services only. The LLM calls are routed to the closest data centers, but can go into other regions where capacity is available. No customer data is written outside the user's home region. Starting in July, the early access program for Microsoft 365 Copilot will align with our commitments under the EU data boundary. So they do have a bunch of that type of information in here, if you're curious about it. It's interesting that starting in July, the early access program will adhere to that. Is that an EU thing, or is that a hint at that maybe we'll see this in July because they're getting ready for public preview and want to make sure it aligns with all that when it hits public preview? I have no idea. Me reading between the lines. I don't know. I have I haven't <laughs> been paying attention to some like more deeply some of the stuff that's going on over in the EU. I know there was the initial hubbub with you know Italy banning some of those things, which they've kind of dialed back a little bit and walked back some of that. But 
We'll see. I don't think you'll know like the fallout until all of this is broadly available. People can kind of see what it does and understand where it's going. And then I would imagine that given the kind of you know, government tour that some of the CEOs of, of these companies like Sam Altman and OpenAI, like they, they're going around and kind of visiting with governments now. I'd imagine this stuff is just going to be litigated for a while as well once it launches and gets ready to go. But I imagine also a number of organizations will be kind of hampered by that in the beginning, especially because there's going to be lack of clarity there. I just don't know how they'd get to like a 100% locked in kind of prescriptive set of guidance around that. Like I, I haven't seen it done yet. It'd be interesting if it could get done for this. Yeah. And then the last big thing I would say is the license management. We already talked about you need a base license. Needing a base license implies that this is not included in a base license, <laughs> that it is an add-on. But then yes. further down, they also say Copilot license management. As with other apps and services, admins will be able to manage Microsoft 365 Copilot licenses using the Admin Center, blah, 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 blah. That very much implies as well that there is a Microsoft 365 Copilot license that you will have to buy. So for all of you hoping that this was going to be just a free addition to maybe even the E5 plan, Kind of reading between the lines here where it talks about base licenses and then it also talks about Microsoft 365 licenses. Very much my expectation is is that this is absolutely going to be a paid add-on to all of the existing license plans that you may have. This is not coming, well, I won't say an add-on to any of them. An add-on to the base licenses, there are not going to be licenses that automatically include this. You're going to have to go spend money to get Copilot is how I would interpret everything in this article. Yeah, you ready for an E6 or an E7 or an E42? <laughs> like, like Whatever the answer is. I mentioned that to somebody the other day. I was like, I would actually love an E7 or an E9 that just includes everything. I get it. It's going to be an expensive license. If it's $97 or $125 per user per month. For me, I am getting tired of trying to manage. I'm going to license everything. For my job, for what I have to do, I am going to have at least one license of everything for myself so that I can adequately talk about it, test it out, validate it, that type of stuff. I am getting so tired of adding on add-ons to my license that even if it's the same price, I would pay for an E7 or an E9 that includes everything just to simplify my management, to align everything together, just to have one big product, to know exactly how much it is, I mean, maybe Microsoft, if they bundled everything, they'd be able to knock off a few bucks. I'm just tired of add-ons. I want one license that includes it all. <laughs> I don't miss my days of having <laughs> to worry about those kinds of things. And I've mostly forgotten about it, right? Like with my current employer, it's like stuff is just there. And I just use it and consume it and it's fine. There's you really mean you not don't much have to I think see. about it. Microsoft gives you your licenses for their products. Uh, they they give me that and a lot of early release broken software. Yes, that makes it so like I have to reboot multiple times a day. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, but kind of not. You kind of signed up for it when you took the job, Scott. I mean, just saying. A little bit. All right. With that, I don't know that I have anything too exciting in terms of news. There's even more Viva stuff. I'm doing some stuff on Viva. We might have to do a circle back around to Viva. 
There are new Viva products I didn't even know existed that have been announced. <laughs> Viva, the one that sneaks up on you. Yes. I, I've been playing around with Viva goals a little bit lately, so there is some stuff out there. How about Viva Amplify? Have you heard about Viva Amplify? No idea what it is. See, exactly. I'm going to put it right up there with like syntax indexes and syntax repositories and like all the crazy stuff you hear about like later about these products as they come together. So I don't know. We'll see. If you want to talk about Viva sometime, we can talk about Viva. We would just need to catch up. There was Amplifying, there was one other one that was out there that I just ran across the other day that I was like, huh, who knew? Apparently some of this came from Glint. Microsoft acquired a company Glint. Mm-hmm. And some of these new Viva stuff came from Glint and there's going to be a Viva Glint now as well. Microsoft Viva and Glint. Yeah, Microsoft Viva and Glint. I saw somewhere. Microsoft, yeah, Microsoft, Microsoft, Viva Glint. Microsoft Adoption. <laughs> like... <laughs> Viva's like a bunny. It just keeps having babies or something like that. Anyways, we do not need to talk about Viva anymore, but there's more Viva stuff we can talk about if we decide to talk about Viva. Done and done. We'll get that sorted too. And with that, I will let you go enjoy your weekend. I'm going to go work this weekend because... I have end of the month deadlines that I need to make some progress on. Yeah, I got some. We're in the middle of a semester, so yeah, <laughs> I got to get all my like retros done and mid semester reviews and all that stuff. So have fun with those. The work never stops. Yeah, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Let's just put it that way. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Enjoy your weekend. Don't work too hard. Hopefully we'll get some non-rainy weather and we will talk to you next week. As it's been getting darker and darker behind me as I'm sitting here, I'm like, should I turn up my key light? Do I have to turn my lights on? (laughs) We just Uh, had a thunderstorm roll through here. Maybe it's coming your way. All right. All good. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks, Scott. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.